Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Kyle Talbot, uh, recently graduated from the University of Graz, and you finished your PhD. So congratulations, newly doctor, Kyle Talbot. Uh, thank Welcome you. to Lost in Citations. I appreciate it. This is one of the first times I've had the pleasure of being called doctor, actually. <laughs> how does it How does it feel? Uh, you know, it's a huge huge weight off the shoulders. You know, you work on something for a very long time. Um, that's kind of interesting when you, when you turn it in, there's always seems to be something that you want to change. And that feeling, uh, seems to have extended for me even past the PhD. I, I still, every once in a while, think of things I would have liked to have done a little bit differently. Yeah, pretty interesting, but it's good to have it done. I bet. Well, congratulations. Be- before you finished your PhD, did you get correspondence where people called you doctor? Uh, a, few, a few times, yeah. Especially for people who uh, were asking uh, me to review papers. Yeah, that's that's happened to me a couple times, and I just feel guilty about it. And then it's funny because a friend of mine, uh, Jeff, he's actually been on the, the podcast a few times, Jeff Stewart, and mm-hmm. he said one of the main motivations was to get his PhD or finish it was because everyone was always already calling him doctor anyway. So he just didn't want to tell people I'm not a doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there's a lot of, you know, MA students and PhD students on papers, you know, from, so I think when people read them, they just assume that everyone has a doctorate, but um, yeah. All right. So the paper that we're going to be discussing today is exploring university ESL, EFL teachers, emotional well-being and emotional regulation in the United States Japan and Austria. I almost said Australia. So we're we're covered there. I mean, you and I are both from the United States. Um, I'm currently in Japan and you were in Austria. So we're experts on the subject. (laughs) Yeah. Resident experts here. (laughs) And uh, we should say that your co-author on this paper was Sarah Mercer. Uh, For people that are interested in listening to her episode, that is Citation 97. Wow, is she a wonderful person? We can get into that later, but man, she was your advisor? Yeah, yeah, I had the pleasure of having Sarah as my advisor. That was uh, quite a wonderful experience. Jeez, is she the nicest person on earth or what? Yeah, it has to be in the running. Wow, so you were lucky. I mean, as you know, I'm sure you have friends in the, in the field. That there are some horror stories with uh, with advisors. So if you get a good one, I mean that you're all you're you're already off to a good start. Yeah, that, I mean, uh, you know, the, that's the reason I went to to Graz in the first place was was to work with her. Um, so you know, I, I had communicated with her um, at a conference in Poland uh, and talked to her a little bit. I was presenting there uh, when I was still finishing up my MA, or it might have been when I was working at the University of Iowa as a faculty lecturer, but. Yeah, I had talked to her a little bit, and I had worked with uh, Tammy Gregerson previously, and they're close colleagues. And yeah, it just sort of worked out. And I, you know, asked her if she was accepting students at the time, and at the time she was. Um, so yeah, I got quite lucky, and I feel fortunate uh, to have worked with her, and um, and hopefully now to to work with her as a as a colleague. All right, so let, let's back up a little bit. Um, I kind of want to hand you the floor and let, let's start back from as far as you want to go, you know, where you're from and, you know, you know, where you grew up and, and maybe how did you get interested in languages? Yeah. Um, 
I've always been interested, you know, in, you know, reading and English. And I did my undergrad uh, just in general English. And uh, after I did that, I moved to Spain and taught English independently. Um, and I kind of, you know, when I was doing that, I kind of, I, I liked it. Um, but I just decided to do it at more of a professional level. Mm. So I moved back to the, to the U S, um, and decided to get my MA, uh, in, in, in TESOL. Um, yeah. And so for, for two years while I was getting my master's, I was managing a live music club, booking bands and, uh, living above a bar and then going to class in the morning, uh, and, or, you know, uh, working on my PhD or my, my master's. Wow. And how did you do that? That was quite interesting. It was, it was an interesting time. Um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, it really was. What and time did you wake it. up in the morning? Uh, gosh, I don't remember when my earliest classes were, but you know, um, I never seemed to have too much of a problem with it. then. well, uh, I, I really struggle waking up in the morning. Yeah. I mean, I mean, maybe I did, but I just, I remember it. It, it fondly and it was a you know wonderful time but you know tammy with tammy gregerson was one of my teachers at that time so this and was in, I, this was in the university of northern iowa yeah this was in in cedar falls university of northern iowa while she was still there okay uh, and i had the pleasure of being her research assistant and so i helped her way back uh, on a paper that her and a few others were working on um and then her and i you know we we presented a, a at an international conference together and you know, became very close. Um, and yeah, so, um, it was a pleasure working with her and yeah, after that, um, I went and taught for a few years. Um, and I was still in, in, in communication with Tammy. Uh, and she told me about a, a conference she was going to in, in Thailand and I wanted to go. I didn't have any research at the moment. I did a little bit of teacher research. I was kind of brainstorming, thinking about what to do. And I did a very informal um, study on uh, um, teachers and, and how they felt about their work. And it's kind of like a narrative study. Um, and yeah, that got me interested in teacher research, which I, I ended up doing with Sarah later. So you said after you finished your MA in TESOL, at mm -hmm. University of Northern Iowa. Then you, you taught yeah. at the University of Iowa? Yeah, yeah. I went there for, you know, just under three years. Um, uh, I taught at the University of Iowa. And it, it, I, I loved it. I really did. Um, is, that some, then, is that somewhere you could ahead. have stayed for a career? Or is that a limited-term contract? No, I, I, was, I was on, um, you know, there's... There was a pathway. I think it, it, it it's only at certain universities um, in the in the U.S. But there are, there are pathways for some uh, you know non PhD uh, um, teachers to have more or less full time employment. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I probably could have continued doing that, but you know, I I, I also like doing research, um, and I you know I've always liked the idea of being an ac academic and. You know, I've always thought about the academic lifestyle and, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I romanticized the academic, uh, lifestyle. Um, and I thought that'd be quite interesting to, to pursue. Like sweater and, vests and, and, yeah, yeah. and scarves and, and, uh, and the pipe <laughs> yeah. and stuff in the fireplace. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, just the flexibility and autonomy of mm -hmm. it. And I don't know if it, I don't think things are continuing in that direction, but you know, when you kind of, 
you know, think about academia, at least, at least how I thought about when I was growing up is, you know, it's a job with, um, a great deal of autonomy and flexibility. And, you know, you're, you have a, a boss, I guess, you know, the department head, but you're more or less, you know, the master of your own schedule, the master of your own classes. And I found that really appealing. And plus you get to, you know, pursue information professionally, which is, you know, for curious people is, is, is quite an interesting proposition. So you, you, you said you were managing uh, a club. So do you have a musical background? Yeah, I was actually playing and playing in bands at that time too. Um, yeah, you can find us on Spotify probably, but we're not together anymore. What's the name of the band? It was uh, called John Jr. John Jr. Jr. So it was a little play on the words there. So it was, yeah, three words, John, June, year. John, June, year. I'll check, yeah. I love Spotify. I'll, ch- I'll check that out. Yeah, check it out. See, see what you think. Well, I mean, I also come from a background in music, not a, not as cool as uh, being in a band. Um, but <laughs> as far as, you know, having that creative aspect in your brain, that is another, attra- I would agree that's another attractive feature of academia mm. as far as, you know, coming up with an idea and an original idea or you think it's an original idea <laughs> and then, you know, trying to pursue it. It is, that is kind of an attractive thing about the job. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you, you, I don't know much about Iowa. So university of Northern Iowa, and then you went to university of Iowa. Are they, are they in close proximity? Yeah. About an hour and a half apart. Okay. Um, and you stayed there for three years and then mm-hmm. you, you were in touch with uh, Tammy Gregerson, and then you started to do some some pilot uh, pilot stuff with teachers at Iowa. Uh, well, no, it was more independent. Um, so, you, you know, Tammy and I had previously looked into you know some some work on you know at the time it was positive psychology, um, and she told me about um, a symposium she, uh, she, she was putting together with with a few others that was going to be in Thailand and you know, I love traveling and, and, and she wanted to know if, you know, I was interested in that. And, and of course I was, but I didn't have any, um, current research projects because I was just so busy with teaching. Mm. And so I was trying to think of, you know, some type of project that I could put together on a fairly, um, short time scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I actually never published this, but it got me interested in the topic. I don't know. Do you know, um, Rebecca Oxford's empathics model. No. So essentially she, Rebecca Oxford did some research, um, uh, in, in, in terms of wellbeing. Um, and she used PERMA, which is, um, you know, maybe the flagship wellbeing theory from positive psychology. Um, and she, um, found that it didn't quite suit her purposes, although she found it useful. So she sort of expanded, uh, PERMA and then into empathics and empathics, I guess is, um, you know, it's an acronym with different dimensions, um, related to, to being specifically designed for English language learners. Okay. Um, but she did say it could apply to teachers too. So, um, I, I kind of was interested in seeing if I could gather teacher narratives much like she did in one of her studies mm. by asking these teachers to talk about, you know, sort of the highs and lows of their language teacher journeys, I suppose. And I wanted to see if I could find the dimensions uh, of empathics within the narratives. And so I was doing this all in a way that was quite informal. I didn't, you know, 
I had done research in the past, but I had never really done independent research. But I, I, I knew enough to, to, to see that there was quite a lot of um, the dimensions that were in her model that I found in the teacher narratives. I see. And so I presented that in Thailand with um, as part of a symposium with, with Sarah and Peter and, um, and, and a few others and Tammy, of course. So Sarah and Peter McIntyre, you mean? Yeah. Right. Um, okay. So I'll, I'll just to tell people. So if you're interested in hearing from Rebecca, Rebecca Oxford, she was on Citation 36. And Peter McIntyre, I think, was Citation 51. Uh, you can just go to our website and, and search for the the previous guests. Okay. So and then what what made you take the step from Iowa to Austria? <laughs> uh, yeah, that that's quite interesting. You know, I, uh, I I think I was ready for a PhD, and I I, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do, but um, Sarah seemed willing to take me on. Um, and yeah, so I just I don't know I I just decided to take the jump and 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 move over there. I'd lived abroad in the past. I lived in Spain for a while. Um, I I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought I would also enjoy living in Austria and working with Sarah. And I ended up um, you know getting a research assistantship with a grant that she had um, um, a, a grant that she had won. Uh, or was awarded. And so, yeah, I had, I secured employment with her and, uh, got her as a supervisor to boot. So I was set. Um, so does that mean your living expenses were covered as well? Well, I mean, you know, um, well, the perk was when you were working for the university, you didn't have to pay tuition fees, which is nice. Uh (laughs) Uh, Not that, you know, uh, European tuition fees are the same as the U S or anything, but, um, yeah, I had enough to, you know, have an apartment and, and, and get by on my uh, assistantship. It was a, you know, pre-doc assistantship. I I saw that recently, I don't know, this, you know, there'll be a bit of a time lag when this podcast is posted, but I saw recently that she posted an advertisement for a post-doctorate position at Graz. Oh, yeah, I saw that too. Is that something just, that you would, you would be interested in or are you kind of moving um, on? Yeah, that's. I mean, it's just a little complicated with uh, with with the girlfriend. So I see. <laughs> uh, Your girlfriend yeah, I mean, is what, is American or Austrian? Austri- yeah, she she she's she's American. Uh, that's you know that's one of the reasons. You know, this is, might be uninteresting to some, but <clears throat> that's one of the reasons I was comfortable getting a PhD. She had gotten a job in Japan. Uh, oh, okay. And uh, at Universal Studios. Uh, as a, uh, as a dancer. Oh, wow. Uh, and so she was leaving and it was good timing because then I could leave too. So it was almost like we were both going off on adventures at the same time. And you stayed together while she was in Japan and you were in Austria? Yeah, we've, we've stayed together through a lot, actually. It's kind of a nice story. How is that possible? <laughs> well, we, we uh, you know, I visited a few times and she visited a few times and, um, yeah. Wow. That's, that's, inc- that's incredible. Uh, thank you. It's a it's 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 a good relationship. I thought it was going to be kind of funny if if you said that your girlfriend was Austrian, because <laughs> then you think it's a little bit complicated with the girlfriend. You know, yeah, she's, no, she's in Austria. And it's like I don't want to go back and see her again. <laughs> 
well, what was it like living in Austria? I mean, I just, I see pictures sometimes of what Sarah posts and it's just, just, I'm just overwhelmed with jealousy and hatred for uh, not being, <laughs> not being there. Yeah. I mean, it's, well, you know, Japan's nothing to, you know, I love Japan too, but uh, you know, Austria is, is, is one of the most beautiful places in the world. Um, it was kind of interesting. I lived, um, in, in the only skyscraper in the city, there's only one, I think they decided it was kind of an eyesore and didn't know, uh, <laughs> and they made no more, but that meant, you know, I got the, you know, beautiful view of Graz. Wow. Uh, I had like a little balcony and stuff and I'd have my coffee. So, you know, and it was only about a 10 minute walk or less, uh, to the office, um, and everything. So, I mean, it was it was really ideal. Um, it's, it's a wonderful place to live. Uh, I had a little trouble learning German. Um, I, I, you know, I think it's because I was so focused on my PhD work that you know I, I didn't have well, perhaps I don't know. I, I, I tried to learn my best. I was taking classes, but I, I was pretty involved with the PhD work at that time. So well, that was a bit challenging. That's a good point. You know, I really find it's hard to do high level academia work and do language learning at the same time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think, I think it is, it is challenging. Um, you know, I think I'm probably more confident with my Spanish than my German. Um, and I haven't spoken that in a little while either, but you know, it was a bit, it was a bit difficult. You know, you're so focused on, on something and you're thinking about it all the time. And my, my work was also, you know, um, it wasn't exactly the same work as my PhD, but they were, you know, roughly similar topics. So, so what does that mean? Um, your work? Does that mean the work you were doing as far as your assistantship? Yeah, yeah, that was. Uh, we we were also looking. You know, the the you know the article we're talking about today is about you know language teacher well being, but actually my assistantship was also sort of about uh, language teacher well being in in CLIL contexts or EMI contexts. Okay. Uh, and you know, it was kind of like looking at teachers in these novel settings where you know they're sort of expected to you know teach in a in a, in, in through English or another language, uh, even if they're not, you know, trained as, you know, English teachers. Um, so, uh, they were just kind of related. So I was kind of always thinking about, you know, teacher well-being, whether it was the CLIL teachers or, you know, the EFL, ESL teachers that I was looking at my own PhD. What does CLIL stand for again? Content and language integrated learning. Okay. Got it. Right. My colleague, uh, Chris Haswell, He's really interested in in that and uh, EMI, so he he might we we um we alternate the interviews, so he might contact you at a later date to interview about EMI. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to talk about it. It uh, was a it was a really interesting project, and uh, we kind of looked in some differences between EMI and and CLIL and um you know the teacher responses to it, and um, yeah, I actually edited edited a book. Um, uh, called the psychological experience of integrating content and language. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there's probably other people that are in that book that he might be interested in talking to as well. Yeah. Well, um, I'm definitely going to reach out to him because I, I think I did see, uh, I don't know if it was in this paper or another paper of yours where you had mentioned EMI. So mm -hmm. I think Chris is probably going to contact you later on down the road to talk about that stuff. Sure. So what was your, what was your schedule like? Did you were you do were you teaching classes or was it all research? I wasn't I wasn't teaching classes. I had the opportunity to do so I think in my last semester, but I was just you know pretty focused on um, getting the getting my PhD finished and in the work I was doing. So I just didn't feel it was uh, I, I wanted to you know take on anymore at that particular moment. 
Um, but you know, life was, life was good. Um, you know, you know, uh, I, I woke up really early. I had, a, I had a really interesting schedule. I wake up early and, you know, I, I feel like half the day was done before I even got into the office. Um, I had great colleagues, um, and all, all were interested in, in this type of work and, uh, you know, you know, psychological, uh, you know, psychology of language teaching and learning, you know, broadly. Um, and so, yeah, the day was nice. I, you know, went out to eat with colleagues sometimes. I'd get coffees with them. I'd, you know, spend time in the office and then I'd go back and, you know, sometimes I'd work on my PhD sitting outside on the balcony or finding a little coffee shop. Um, you know, when you're, when you're in Austria, it's everywhere is, is, is beautiful <laughs> essentially, or it seems that way. So I'd, you know, walk around the city a lot and yeah. Did you find that there was a language barrier or you could speak English? Well, I, you know, I, I got, I, I became, uh, you know, competent enough to, you know, to do small talk and do groceries and order coffee and order a wine and, and, and all that. So, you know, a little bit at first I had problems. You know, I think, I think I vaguely look European. So a lot of people approach me initially in German, mm-hmm. um, which didn't happen with, you know, you know, everyone, but yeah, yeah, that, yeah that definitely uh, doesn't happen to me in Japan. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That, you know, that's the thing. It's like, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I imagine that happens to a lot of uh, people. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, I was typically approached and, and, and well, see that that you know, helps. Was, that helps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it did. It, it did. I, you know, I was I was fortunate for that, um, and I did. You know, I learned enough. I could probably go back and still order a coffee or a meal or something. So, you know, that's positive. Well, I mean, it sounds like it was an amazing experience. Or, you know, reflecting upon it now, or it, was it one? Because I I lived in I don't know if you ever been there or heard of a Banff in in uh, Canada. It's. Mm-mm. I think that's where um, The Shining was was filmed. Um, I like that movie. I think so. it's it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. It's just okay. It's and I lived there for six months, and I look back on it fondly. But it is odd living in a place that's so beautiful. It almost feels like it's like I can't stay here forever. It's so I I guess the question is when you, when you look back now reflecting on it, is it some place you miss or you're you're like wow that was great, but it's kind of time to move on. Uh, I really miss it. Um, and, and Vienna is one of my favorite cities probably in the world that I've visited. I've been to, you know, quite a few places and I really, really loved it. But, you know, Graz is interesting because it's the second largest city in Austria, but it's not one of like the top most visited places in Austria. Okay. So it, it has sort of this like real feeling to it, I suppose. Um, yeah, no, I, I I miss Austria a lot. There, there there are a lot of elements of it, aspects of, of life there that I that I miss. So, yeah, I, it's, it's a wonderful place to live. Is it some place you might want to go back? In the, well, I guess that depends on your relationship. But so yeah, I think, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think so if if it, if it worked out. Yeah, but you know that would depend on a few things. Right. Okay, so let's get into the paper. So the name of the today's paper is Exploring University ESL EFL Teachers Emotional Well-Being and Emotional Regulation in the United States, Japan, and Austria. So just to set the timeline, this was published in 2018, Chinese Journal of Applied Linguistics. 
When did you start thinking about writing this paper? Uh, I know Sarah Mercer is your co-author. So mm -hmm. I'm just wondering at the time. So are you in Austria at this time? Yes. Okay. So tell us about the background of the, the paper. Well, this, this paper is, is essentially the pilot paper for my uh, PhD. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I, I had sort of started, you know, thinking and sort of set, settling my mind on doing research related to language teacher well-being. You know, this was something I informally had looked at on my own through those teacher narratives that were never published okay. uh, for the, the, the conference in Thailand. Uh, it was something I was working on with Sarah and others um, in, you know, for my research assistantship. And so, you know, I didn't want to necessarily work on something that would be totally, um, you know, perpendicular in the sense that, you know, I, I didn't want to do double reading or something like that. I wanted to be able to apply some of what I was learning right. in my research to the PhD itself. So, um, you know, uh, I, I basically just started you know, interviewing people, um, and from, from these places, um, well, you, know, you had, kind of, you had says 12 in-depth semi-structured interviews, uh, with ESL, EFL tertiary level teachers in the United States, Japan, and Austria. So yeah. how did you, how did you select your participants? Uh, this is, this is a really interesting question. I have both, uh, an academic answer and a and a pragmatic answer, which one should we go with? <laughs> Whatever you want. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I wanted sort of, uh, you know, proto uh, typical ESL context and uh, with my connections to the U.S., I, I figured that would work. Um, I was living in Austria, so that seemed like, you know, perfect for, you know, a, a prototypical European context of EFL. Mm -hmm. You know, all these countries have different like. Uh, you know, linguistic background situations too. You know, Austria is quite multilingual. U.S. and Japan are not. So, you know, I, I imagine that there would be different challenges. Um, you know, you want to you want to have a broad scope of, uh, of, of you know you know different contexts, but you can't choose every context in qualitative research. So right. I kind of you know settled on a, a few that I thought would yield sort of interesting results. And Japan. I knew I'd be out there for a few visits. Um, so that made sense to add as like a prototypical Asian uh, country. Well, I, th I think it's perfect whether it was pragmat for pragmatic reasons or not. Um, I mean, you have America, you have Japan. Those couldn't be too, you know, as far as cultures be further mm -hmm. apart. And you have Austria. It's kind of somewhere in the middle with Europe. And you had four participants from each country. I'm just looking on table one. And a pretty wide range of teaching experience. I think the, the most was uh, the pseudonym Allison from Austria, 39 years. Mm -hmm. And the least was Helen uh, from the U.S., four years. So these are – so you said tertiary tertiary level. What, what, is it, what, what does that mean? That means they're – Basically higher education. Okay. So that means they're university teachers? Yeah. I, I use yeah I use tertiary sort of as a as a as a catch all for that um, and you know uh, people are quite familiar with secondary meaning like high school middle school so I use tertiary to kind of you know grab all of higher education. Got it. Okay. And uh, in the paper you said most of the 
not mo- well half or most were on Skype and some were face to face. Um, yeah, I um, most of them were in person actually. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, I'm trying to trying to remember. You know, this was in 2018, so I, I can't remember exactly how many were on Skype here, but I think I think uh, I think three of the Japanese um, three of the Japanese were on on Skype from this this paper, but I, I did interview people in Japan too. Uh, I ended up with 21 interviews total. Okay. And these 12 ended up being uh, sort of adopted within the larger sample uh, for the paper, for, or for the PhD. So this, you know, I, I used 12 for this paper as the pilot. They got transported and included within the final dissertation to a sample of 21. Now, um, didn't you say you lost an interview, but then because the person was interesting, you interviewed her again? Yeah. So that, that person must have been very interesting. Yeah, she she was um, incredibly positive person. Um, I you know I, she just had such a refreshing perspective on uh, on on positive thinking that I thought it would be a shame to not include her um, sort of her perspective and you know this, her pseudonym. Looking at that same table that you are looking at on page four hundred and sixteen was Ichika. Mm. Um, and yeah, she, you know, she had this really interesting way of, uh, of talking about, you know, balance and, um, positivity and, uh, letting go of negativity. So I, I, it was really lamentable that we lost the interview, but, you know, fortunately it gave me the opportunity to talk to her, uh, twice, which I was happy to do. And, and I think she was too. How did you record face to face? I, I used a cell phone. Uh, just to, you know, just uh, iMessage or something like that. And I also tried to bring like a, a recorder as well. So I had a, like a, a, you know, a handheld recorder and a cell phone. And my thinking was, you know, I don't want to lose this. Mm-hmm. But with the the Skype interview, it was lost through through Skype. And, yeah, um, you know, I, I think there was an issue with MP3 recording software. I see. Um, and so, you know, I didn't know. I didn't have it until I went to try to transcribe it. If you were to do it again, you know, with modern technology, would you do it all online? Or do you um, think you no. lose something face to face? Well, you know, the the interviews, you know, I thought, okay, so I'm I'm a little bit of two minds with this, but you know, the face to face interviews were, you know, incredibly stimulating and you have the you have the all the nonverbals. Mm-hmm. But I I don't think the particular interviews that I had that were online I can't say that they were of any less quality for anecdotally. And that has been, you know, that has been found in, you know, I think I cite uh, Deacon and Wakefield. Um, they, they found something similar in one of their papers when they were talking about the difference between um, interviews online and in person. But, you know, the interviews I had online were quite engaging, but I think just with my personality, I'd prefer to, you know, to, to meet in person. Um, yeah, I, I would prefer that. Um, and only a few interviews were, were actually online. So Because I've, you know, I've done a lot of interviews online and, and I've done, I did one data collection. Uh, we did a series of nine interviews and we did that online. And I just don't think I could go back to face-to-face just because logistically, <laughs> I mean, you can line them up 
and there's no time. Like, I mean, it's just as far as like as far as time, and then nowadays you can you know, export the MP3 file, and you have the transcription software, and it's just. I mean, just thinking for anyone who's like busy. I mean, a face-to-face -face interview. What if if someone's like someone's more likely to be five minutes late at a coffee shop than showing up at a Zoom meeting, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it, it's interesting to think about that now. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think I would still prefer to do it in in person. Although I don't think anything was necessarily taken away from the other interviews, at least anecdotally for this particular study. Yeah, that made me feel better when I read that because I did, I did kind of wonder. <laughs> You know, this is easier logistically, but am I missing out on something? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there'd be some who would 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 think that you know in person was you know far superior, and they might have stronger arguments in favor of that. But uh, not me. I, I seem to enjoy both. But, but here, I guess here's the other thing. Um, tangentially speaking, um, <laughs> sorry, it's kind of an inside joke. Uh, um, as far as you know, teaching online, when when we moved to online because of COVID, and I would, I'd have students do recordings and, and other sorts of activities where they'd have to submit, you know, verbal activities online, I noticed that their speaking was so much better. And I think as far as in the in the Japanese context, because you get them out of the classroom and some of the, the dynamics that are happening in the Japanese classroom, mm -hmm. I mean, their, their, their confidence was way better, just because they didn't have to worry about all these other factors. So I was thinking, huh. oh, in in is it would a Japanese person be more relaxed talking to me online because then they don't have to worry about some of these extra stresses that maybe they experience? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's an interesting question. Yeah, I but that's the thing. I don't want to pursue that research question because if I pursue that research <laughs> question, I'm basically putting myself out of a job. <laughs> it's like I don't want. I don't. I don't believe that to be true. I think, especially if we're talking about teaching, like I, I don't think teaching online is good. As far as a class, you, you need these. And again, to tie it back into the paper, you talked about one of the reasons why people go through burnout. And um, there was a great there was a great line here. Let me just try to find it real quick. Um, something about interactional. Interper oh, here it is. Interpersonal relations. Integration of personally meaningful content. Um, were some of the reasons why people get burned out. I mean, yes, that is a reason why we get burned out. But if you take away the classroom, that interpersonal relation, you know, that, you know, getting that feedback, you know, so on one end, yes, my Japanese speakers might be more confident if they're not in the classroom. Mm -hmm. so you still need to go out in the world. In the end, isn't that the reason yeah. why you develop language skills? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, 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 that was, you know, that line that you pointed out was... Uh, actually a major argument for why to research with language teachers in particular um, mm. given that um, arguably it, it, it might be more emotionally demanding um, you know given what you're talking about the you know possibly face threatening in terms of you know you know failing with a language or uh, you know not expressing your full identity as much as you could in your own language um, it's just uh, language teaching is is highly emotional. It's got a, an emotional character to it. So, um, yeah, that's that was one of my major arguments for 
researching language teachers in particular. What was really interesting, and this comes more from my from my PhD rather than this paper, but what was interesting to me is that a lot of, or some of the teachers, I should say, seem to get energy back from the interpersonal classroom experience, mm. whereas others needed an immediate break afterwards. You know, it was more draining to them. Um, and so, so it was interesting because, you know, some of what was energy draining for some was energy providing for others, which I thought was quite, quite interesting and probably had a lot to do with, you know, the individual's personalities, but I thought that was an interesting kind of finding. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Depending on what kind of, like you said, what kind of, if you're an introvert or an extrovert, Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, maybe that introvert is gaining energy within the class. And it's getting them through, but then at the end of the class, they just kind of crash or something, right? Mm. Yeah, 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 it could be. Um, but yeah, I had a uh, some 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 teachers. You know, I, I always kind of got burnt out uh, from teaching, and I'm fairly extroverted. But you know, you know, it's almost like when you're teaching, sometimes you have to be so on. It's almost in a sense, kind of like a theater mm. performance. You know, you put on the face. Um, and then you go in and you're, you know, you know, you're teaching, but you're, you're doing oftentimes more than that. You're sometimes you're entertaining or, um, you know, putting on a particular emotion, emotional facade. Um, so yeah, there's quite a lot of dynamics with, with the emotional character of, of, of teaching that I think, you know, need to be thought about and researched. Yeah. My, my research interest is, you know, the effect of, anxiety on performance and now you know further you know the effect of anxiety on silence because silence is a big factor in japanese classrooms Mm -hmm. and you know a lot of you know people from the west when they come to japan they're kind of you know taken aback with the amount of silence and you know i was talking to someone about this you know a lot of times we're trained or even like growing up in a classroom in America or in England or whatever, where a teacher will just throw out, you know, a question and they're just looking for like a quick response almost to set the context, you know, or, or to get people thinking about it. And a lot of times someone will answer it and the person gets it wrong and they, okay, but oh, good guess. But now, now here, let me teach you. Right. But in Japan, it's hard for some teachers to get past that point because, you know, the accuracy of the answer is so important in Japan, mm. not the time. And so I think a lot of teachers get burnout coming from the West when they come here because they're just, they're not used to that, that lag. And so it's almost like a momentum thing. Like there's no moment. They don't feel like there's any momentum in the class. They don't sense that people are engaged when they actually are engaged, but it's, it's, it's like a silent engagement. It takes a, it's a big, I don't know if you've ever done teaching in Japan, but that's a lot of feedback you get from people when they first come to Japan is just dealing with so much more silence than, yeah, than in yeah other that's, contexts. That's, that's that's really interesting, and you know, I think they're, uh, you know, they talk often about um, teachers not being very good at waiting for answers. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the 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 wait time between question and when they end up volunteering the answer, or kind of, you know, I guess it minimally scaffolding it um, is is quite short. So I can I can imagine that might be quite the the culture shock for a new teacher in Japan that's not used to that environment. Yeah, there's there's a guy um Jim King who did uh, a lot of studies on silence in Japan. He he was comparing I think in Europe or in America 
uh, a second language teacher is accustomed to about 40% of silence, right? Um, mm. But in Japan, it's like 80% or 90%. Wow. And then like less than 1% student instigated talk. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be difficult, especially like in a conversation class or something like that. Um, I that, could see I mean, that being... Yeah, I mean that's when I that's how I get burned out because I I and I was you know reading through your paper I was kind of thinking about that that I you know I could see why people get one of the findings in your paper when you know people you know to balance their well being was you know getting energy from their students and I I think I would fall into that category as well right like um, you know if if I'm if I don't feel like I'm getting anything from my my students I almost feel like I, I'm not accomplishing anything and and now that I've been researching about silence and stuff that's not really the case it's just on the outside it's just a totally different it's a different culture and again it brings back to the the idea of the, your identity and the interpersonal relationships and these interpersonal relationships with different identities in different countries mm-hmm. um I can see how you probably you had a you had a lot to read during your PhD I'm sure Probably took you in a lot, lots of different tracks, right? Yeah, yeah. There, were, you know, I was reading very broadly. You know, organizational psychology, literature, philosophy. Um, you know, applied linguistics. Um, it's quite broad. Um, you know, you know, the, the study of well-being. You know, spans back to you know Aristotle and and, and the old Greek dudes. And oh, you went all the way. Jeez. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I didn't. You know, I, I I probably should have went to the original sources but there's enough in some of the papers you know that i read i read there's a there's a really great paper called the engine of of well-being oh um and they were they they were looking for sort of an integrated model of well-being but it's such an incredible review of 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 well-being from kind of its inception and through the years that i found that is a quite valuable like jumping off point um and they, you know, they, they, they talk through, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, how it's been studied in various disciplines. Um, and so that, yeah, that was, that was, an, that was an interesting jumping off point. The engine of well-being, I think is what it was called. Isn't that great when you find a really good review? Yeah, it's like, a, it, I mean, it, it really is a jumping off point. Um, uh, yeah, it, it really is. Um, it, it, it really is very helpful. That's I, I told the story before, but I can I can say it again. That that's sort of the impetus for this podcast, because I was doing a, a, a degree in psychology, and I was a lot of the research was coming back to this the York Stotson law. I don't know if you're familiar with it, where um, they were doing experiment on performance tests on mice, um, as far as you know, uh, stress tests and performance. Mm-hmm. So a lot a lot of stress and 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 all that stuff will. People keep citing Yerk Stotson. So I, when I first started looking, I was like, what is this Yerk Stotson? I was like, <laughs> Early 1900s, what is this? Um, and so, and then I was like, oh, geez, I got to read everything. I got to read everything. And I was just <laughs> reading and reading and reading. And then I, I found this, you know, this, this article written in 1994, which just summed up everything so clearly. And it was mm. well written. It was easy to digest. He said, "Look, this is where we are, and this is where we're going, and this is why it keeps getting cited, and this is how it's been distorted over the years." Right. And and so then I, I wrote him an email. I just said, "Look, I've I've read forty of these reviews, and yours was by far the best. I just wanted to tell you." And then he wrote me back, like two hours later. And and at that point, I was literally like lost in citations. I was like, "I had to, I, was like, <laughs> I need to, I need to talk to somebody. I just need to talk to somebody." 
that's that's great. Funny enough, I actually got in touch with uh, uh, the the author from the engine of, of well being too. <laughs> did you really? Uh, did you did you yeah, write him an yeah, email or something? Kind of a funny coincidence. Yeah, I wrote him an email. I, I thought about using their engine model um, to sort of organize some of my my PhD. I didn't do that eventually, but you know, I, I had some. The, their their model was was really interesting, but it was a bit um, complex, and I, I wasn't able to fully understand exactly how to put it to use. So I just sent him sent him an email and said, you know, how how where would I characterize this particular thing according to your model? Because I didn't think I could figure it out, and I wasn't sure that there were other papers um, that had sort of paved the way for that. So I, that's funny. I did email him and uh, got got a fairly quick response. Isn't that but, great? You know, that, that happens a lot with academia. I mean, you know, I, I think a lot of these. Well, I think a lot of people are just happy to have their papers read. You know, mo- most a lot of papers don't get read. Mm. So I think people are just pretty happy to you know notice that you know their papers were read and you know someone had found some utility in it. I don't think people reach out to each other at all. You don't think so? I could be wrong. That's just my. I I, I think that from my perspective. I don't think academics are used to being contacted like that. Huh. I think they're used to getting their paper cited. Yeah, and maybe maybe I just – I've always just reached out whenever I – because, you know, I, I think I, I've always figured they had public-facing emails for a reason, you know. And so <laughs> I just I've, – I've tended to just – like I, I, I got in touch with uh, Chomsky about something. And he no always way. Back. Yeah, he, well, I should, probably shouldn't say he always emails back because – Maybe someone will just email him about something, but yeah, you, I mean, you can just email him and you know, and he'll get back to you. Well, that, well, then we're sort of like peas in a pod there because, like, I think that's awesome, and I think people should do it more. Yeah, yeah, I, I was, I was happy when you reached out to me. I was like, oh well, I'm glad that someone read that paper. Yeah, of course, I'd want to talk about it. That's cool. Wow. Well, who who else did you reach out to? Um. Well, you know, I've. I've um, you know, before I met, um, you know, Jean-Marc, I, I had reached out to him for something. Um, you know, a lot of the people I ended up meeting later, so it's hard to say, you know, exactly if I reached out to them first or just kind of had them as colleagues. You know, I think I reached out to Kim Knowles for something. Um, so by the way, you know, Kim, Kim Knowles and, and Jean-Marc Dubave, both, both previous episodes on this podcast series. So uh, you, you've got, uh, you've got the, you've got the, the, the good ones. Well, it's funny because um, Peter McIntyre recommended I talk to Kim Knowles. And yeah. he said in that interview that Kim Knowles is pretty much the person that set him down his career path, which oh, wow. which I thought was kind of – it's pretty interesting. And, and then Peter McIntyre said that you know he, he didn't seek out Gardner. Gardner was just at the university he was at, which I just couldn't fathom. You know, that, you look, that, happened to, that happened to me too with, with Tammy. I know, I know Gardner, you know. Uh, I mean, that's quite, that's, I think that just happens sometimes. Like I, you know, I, I never really would have anticipated having the sort of career path, but like, you know, I met Tammy and then through happenstance, I, you know, I had the first paper I ever worked on was co-authored with Tammy and Peter. And then when I went to a conference with them, I met so on and so forth. So it kind of just, <laughs> in a way, just kind of spirals like a snowball rolling down a, a hill, I guess. Did you know who Peter McIntyre was at the time? I didn't really know Peter at the time. I just I was collecting the data for, uh, for for the paper, and then you know met him later, and you know then before too long we were rolling around Thailand together, and we got we were lost looking for a restaurant, and they were telling me that 
and I had picked it out, so everyone was fussy with me. <laughs> oh, that was funny. That's but, that's, uh, that's wild. Yeah, uh, I wanted to just to say something about uh, you know just about well being, I guess. Um, just because I, I I pulled it up when we were talking about the Aristotle thing, so I just thought it would be kind of relevant, and, and you know about the reviews and how far back one goes in a paper. The mm. earliest paper I went back to, actually, like you know, the whole paper was is a Hartman paper in 1934. Mm. And he just had some just killer, killer quotes that like, I, you know, I was like, okay, I, I need to use these in my PhD. But he, he wrote uh, uh, something that uh, he said, uh, uh, the theory of the happy life remains at about the level where Greek philosophers left it. Ooh. And so I thought that was quite interesting that, you know, even in 1934, they were thinking, or at least he was thinking that, you know, nothing has really changed in between you know, Aristotle to that time. Um, and so it's, it, you know, it's, it's strange because well-being is something that has been thought about for so long. Um, and, it, and I thought it was so interesting that he thought that, you know, even though it had been thought about and it, it had applied to so many different disciplines that, that not much had changed. That is, that's really cool. I think that's the cool part of research when you find a good paper. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, well, let's get into some of the findings of, of this paper. And again, the paper that we're discussing today is exploring university ESL, EFL teachers, emotional well-being and emotional regulation in the United States, Japan and Austria. Okay, so let me just run through. Okay, so factors perceived as detracting from emotional well-being. We have individual stressors, language teacher specific challenges, factors related to both positive effect and negative effect, locus of control. Ooh, that's a big one. Colleagues in collaboration. Um, emotional self-regulation strategies, cognitive uh, strategies to adapt to negativity or negativity events, cognitive reappraisal, downward social or self-comparison, problem-directed action, and last, to increase or lengthen positivity or positivity events, savoring or gratitude. Okay, here's the one I want to talk about. Um, (laughs) Downward social or (laughs) self-comparison. Because, dude, I do that. I do that, especially when I'm in a, in a research period, because I, I think when I, when I sit down and, and I read in this great book, it's called how to write a lot. And he basically just says, make a schedule, stick to it and then mm-hmm. go about your life. Right. That's the main part of the book. It's a great book. People should read it, but that's, that's the main part. So, and so when I'm in these periods of time, yeah, I, I make the schedule and I do it. And while I'm doing it, I like it much like I like when I'm finished vacuuming, but I wouldn't say I'm a passionate researcher. I just, I I need to do it. I like doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. But dude, when I'm in these times where I'm heavy into research, I'm listening to true crime podcasts. I'm watching documentaries (laughs) about people in jail. It's like, it must be related to that. Right. (laughs) It very well could be, I suppose. Um, Yeah. uh, I thought that, you know, well, so I guess first of all, I should say about this particular paper, some the findings that I actually, with Sarah, chose to talk about, it was, you know, we had gotten so much back from the interviews. Mm. And this paper was, you know, you know, a bite-sized chunk of what, you know, we wanted to say. So we were trying to figure out a way to organize it in a way that would be, you know, compelling. And so we ended up just picking the most salient factors, mm. which you know, sometimes factors that are not salient are equally as interesting or more interesting. 
which, mm. you know, which is the joy of qualitative research in a lot of ways. But for the purposes of this paper, we picked, you know, what the themes that had been shared across, you know, several individuals. And so I just thought that'd be interesting to clarify before, you know, talking about any of the things, because these are themes that were shared. So the downward social comparison was quite interesting because, you know, no matter what, uh, the, and I don't know, you know I, the, the comparisons were just really fascinating. So, you know, I, I'm thinking about a teacher in the U.S. who who said something, you know, like, uh, well, you know, I don't know if the ESL profession is as respected as, you know, a STEM discipline, mm. but we are, you know, respected. I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, you know, respected more than, you know, high school teachers or something. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like uh, almost contextualizing, um, you know, uh, an aspect of life where one had an advantage, I suppose mm -hmm. you could say. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that happened. I had a in Austria. This was actually one of the U.S. participants who, who was living in Austria. Um, and, and this person compared her her job to her sister's job in the u.s and they were both teachers mm. and was saying that you know my sister has it has it much much worse uh, and sort of like looking favorably upon uh, upon her position but these comparisons were were just fascinating and you know this this went the other direction too um one of one of my the the participants in, in, in this pilot um well uh, ended up saying something like you know i find myself feeling negative when I compare myself to others and, you know, I, I see all these wonderful teachers around me with their creative ideas. Mm. And, you know, I think what, you know, what is my contribution compared to that? So this kind of was, you know, a two way stream, I suppose you could call it. Yeah. Um, this is a really, I know you said that this was sort of a launching point to your PhD, but I think this is a really good paper to read. Um, because you can, you can, if you don't, people don't know much about the topic there's a lot of things that I think you could find in this paper where, oh, that applies to me. Um, mm -hmm. And in in the last sort of section, you mentioned gratitude, and then I kind of thought of Sarah Mercer. I mean, I I, I listened to a couple of her talks. She's really big into gratitude, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think she says that she try she really tries to make an effort every day to to show gratitude to people, and she does a lot of things in her life to sort of boost. I guess you would call it in the paper strategies, or I don't know. I mean, you mentioned sort of the balance of well-being, right? Um, I think she's proactive in balancing her well-being more so than I've seen other people do. And the proof is in the pudding. If you look at her, she looks like one of the most positive people that I've ever seen, just from <laughs> afar. Yeah, she's she's a very positive person. But she works on it, right? It's not just. I mean, I guess it's it's partly her personality, but it seems like she does stuff every day, like proactively. Is that something that you noticed working with her as well? Uh, I think she I think she notices the you know a lot of you know and and, and this you know this is my interpretation. So um, you know I don't I don't I don't know, but I think she notices a lot of uh, the small things you know that are important and uh, and keeps perspective of uh, of the big picture and you know. I, I, I could sense that in some of our interactions, you know, if I, if I mess something up or something, it was like, you know, it's fine, you know, get over it. It's, it's over. Um, you know, let's think about the big picture. Not that I was messing up frequently, but, um, just, I, th I think she, yeah, she does, you know, take perspective and, 
you know, keeps the big picture in mind. And that's sort of one of the reasons she's a joy to work with. Uh, no, I mean, she, you know, at the same time, she's also, you know, she, you know, she knows when to give you a little kick in the pants too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, um, you know, it, it's, 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 it's an environment where you, you, you need to strive to do your best. It's, you know, it's not, um, you know, I, I guess there's something interesting in researching well-being because I think a lot of people, you know, think of it in terms of, you know, just constant positivity, mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking of like, a, you know, like I, it's, it's hard to say exactly what I'm trying to say, but what, but, you know, I think when some people imagine like researching well-being, they think it's like all sunshine in, in, in daisies mm-hmm. um, or, you know, that it's frivolous. Um, but, you know, I think working with Sarah and, and, and sort of my own view is that, you know, it's, it's not just that, um, you know, it, it captures a, a real human element that's important. Um, so I don't know if I, I don't know if this thought's going anywhere, but. No, no, I think what I, my, my point was I'm more on the darker side. And so so that's what I kind of meant that I think everyone could take something from this paper and apply it to themselves. So when I when I read this stuff, I kind of thought of Sarah, not that I know her that well, just and I know mm-hmm. that she's into gratitude. I thought for me to balance, that's one thing that I could use from this paper. I think someone else could read this paper and find something else, right? Um, and like you said, yeah. when you're working on a project, sometimes well-being is just getting something accomplished and sometimes you need someone to push you on the right way. Um, everyone's situation is completely different. And I think this paper shows ways that you just being aware of ways you can balance yourself out and, and the feedback you got from these 12 participants, I think was really helpful. I mean, were you surprised that the, the paper turned out so well? I'm quite happy with, with, with how the paper turned out. And, you know, that, that was something I was surprised about in terms of my PhD. It's, the data I had gathered, you know, from these, these 12 participants was, you know, expansive enough and, um, detailed enough and that I, you know, I, I was very happy and comfortable taking this and saying, okay, I just need a few more interviews. We'll get it to 21 or so. Um, and then we'll call it that. So, you know, I, 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 I guess that is a surprise in a sense that I got such rich data right away and i was happy to include that for the full project so for your phd was it all qualitative yeah oh that's awesome i think i want to do that (laughs) yeah um you know you know i was i was doing things like you know i kept track and i and i named like you know when it applied to this many people Mm. so i guess like you know there was you know vague counting uh but you know nothing 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 beyond that because I I like quantitative stuff, um, and not saying that qualitative is easier. It's by no means. I was actually talking about this with someone the other day. I mean, qualitative can sometimes be more difficult. Just the amount of data you have to go through and the coding, and it's it's just can be. I don't think any one is is more difficult or more easy than the other. But I think the last project I did was so quantitative based, and I like the idea of long form interviews and narratives and. I, I think you can just learn so much. And again, t- like just this, you had this idea and then you, you know, you're 12 participants and then, wow, and we have these connecting themes already and it kind of launched you to your PhD. It's, 
it's cool. It's kind of inspiring. It's um because I'm I'm kind of I have a general idea what I want to do with my PhD, but it's still you know there's still move there's still room to move around. Um, so it's cool mm-hmm. to see a paper like this, um, work out. And it sounds like your PhD worked out as well. I mean, any any last thoughts about coming up here in an hour? So maybe we can oh, finish okay. finish it off. Um, any any sort of re- reflections on your PhD and and where you're going next? Um, yeah, I mean, um, I ended up, um, sort of having some key themes from, from the, the, the PhD that I used to create a a model, um, that could potentially be useful, um, in looking at language teacher well-being, um, in, in, for, for language teachers. Um, and that, you know, you, when you mentioned the idea of, you know, qualitative research um, and sort of the difficulties of it, one thing that I know that I in particular struggle with is that, you know, you have so much data, you can kind of get lost in it. Hmm. Um, and so I was really happy in the end to sort of come to themes, which I thought, well, the themes actually organized the discussion chapter of, of my thesis. But these, you know, themes also became part of, of, of the model hmm. that I that I had come up with. And I was very happy with, with that because it sort of was very, in the end, it was sort of ground, you know, ground up. Um, you know, I, I built it, you know, bottom up. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I could, I could, you know, kind of go over those themes with, with you and talk to you about it. We can, you know, tease everyone, tell them to read my PhD, you know, however, (laughs) however you want, you want to do it. But I ended up, you know, using, you know, that paper that we've been talking about and then the other uh, participants as well and ended up sort of creating my own model from it. Well, maybe we can save that model for uh, a subsequent interview. Maybe you can talk about that with Chris. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, anytime. I'm, I'm, you know, it'd be, it'd be exciting to talk about it. Okay. Well, the paper that we're discussing today is Exploring University ESL, EFL Teachers' Emotional Well-Being and Emotional Regulation in the United States, Japan, and Austria. Dr. Kyle Talbot, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Yep. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.